Well, happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together this morning. Last week, I was able to attend a play that was put on by the Nelson County Co-op Group that meets here, usually on Mondays during the week. They had been practicing very hard to put on a performance of Peter Pan and Wendy. Pretty popular play. And one scene in particular sticks out from that play no matter who puts it on. You know which one I'm talking about, of course. Tinkerbell drinks the poison. She seems to be dying. Peter Pan says to Wendy, She's dying. Tink's dying. She says she'll die unless children believe in fairies. And he turns to the audience and brings them into the magical world. He says, do you believe in fairies? Say quick that you believe. If you believe, clap your hands. Right, and everybody, thunderous applause. You guys missed a real great opportunity to clap. I'm just saying. It's a wonderful moment in the play when the audience gets to feel as if they have entered Neverland themselves. Fantasy can be fun. Imagination, incredible. God has given these things as good gifts to us. And yet fantasy must not be confused with reality. Unfortunately, this confusion is one that permeates our culture. Few can distinguish between that which is true and that which is false. In fact, many a college professor will stand up and teach, there is no absolute truth except that there is no absolute truth. It's a self-defeating statement, but lots of people believe it. Truth is believed to be a putty in the mind of every individual, to be shaped according to preferences and desires. Children are taught truth is whatever you want it to be. It's whatever you believe about yourself and the world. The most important thing in life is that you live your truth. We're in 1 Kings chapter 22 this morning, and this is precisely what Ahab does. He chooses to live his truth over and over again. The problem is that to live your truth is to live by a lie. And if you live by lies you ultimately end up disappointed. And from an eternal perspective, you end up under the eternal judgment of God, the God that you forsook in order to live your truth. The problem with living your truth is that fairies do not exist no matter how hard you clap your hands. 
truth corresponds to reality. And that is a lesson that Ahab, as obstinate as he is, never learns. My hope is as we open the passage this morning, we will see ourselves in Ahab. That we will see how much like him we really are. How often we prefer to follow our feelings rather than facts. How often we choose to live by lies rather than according to the truth of God's word. What does Peter tell Jesus? Your word is truth. Pray that we would not be as all those who do not know God, exchanging the truth about God for the lie, but as those who, and this is our main idea this morning, live not by lies, but rather listen to the word of the Lord. Live not by lies, listen to the word of the Lord. You can see the three sections broken out for you in your outline there today. Let's pray and begin working through the text together. Father, I ask that you would give me clarity of mind, purity of heart, eloquence of tongue, and unction from your Holy Spirit, that I might faithfully teach your word. And ask also for all of us that as we come under the teaching of your word, that we might sense your presence, that your Holy Spirit might illuminate what's true and apply it to us. Ask that you would help us to see and savor Christ this morning. Help us to love you more deeply. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look at verse 1. For three years, Syria and Israel continued without war. But in the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. You'll know that Judah is in the south. We are in a split kingdom. There's two kingdoms. The the better kingdom in Judah, where David's throne is in Jerusalem, and then the northern kingdom in Israel, where Ahab is reigning. You're going, why does Jehoshaphat come down, right? He's in the south. Because everybody that leaves Jerusalem comes down from Jerusalem. It's on a mountain, right? You go up to Jerusalem, no matter where you are in the world, and you go down from Jerusalem, no matter where you are in the world. And the king of Israel said to his servants, verse 3, Do you know, this is my whiny Ahab voice, do you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us and we keep quiet and do not take it out of the hand of the king of Syria? And he said to Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Inquire first for the word of the Lord. The situation here is interesting. Jehoshaphat shows up on the scene as if out of nowhere we haven't been introduced formally to him. But we know that he is a king in Judah. And in fact, we know he's the son of Asa, and he turns out to be a pretty godly king. He follows the Lord his God. But he also makes some mistakes along the way. Maybe chief among them is associating his family with the family of Ahab. 
Because if you were wondering, why would this godly king from the south join himself in the plans and purposes of this ungodly king Ahab in the north? Well, the answer is this. He wed his daughter, I'm sorry, his son, important distinction there, no need for correction this week, Elliot. He wed his son to Ahab's daughter, who may or may not be the daughter of Jezebel, but from what we know about her, she's basically a carbon copy of Jezebel. Not a great thing. Sermon is not about marriage or pursuing a significant other, but hey, beware who you marry. Be careful who you hitch your wagon to. Jehoshaphat finds himself in league with Ahab. And Ahab has a problem, and the irony of this problem should not be lost on us. Do you see that he wants to take this important economic city, it's basically sort of like a toll road, right? If you've ever driven on the Pennsylvania Turnpike and you have to pay like $30 to drive from point A to point B, and you're like, this is ridiculous. That's sort of what Ramoth Gilead is. People pay tolls to move through there. It's an economic center. It's a nice piece of property to own. But it's in the hands of the king of Syria. The king of Syria should maybe be putting some bells off in your mind because you, you remember in the previous chapter, God gave victory to Ahab despite his sin, despite his wickedness. He, he sent his word to Ahab and he said, hey, they're going to come down against you. I'm going to give you victory. Not once, but twice. And you will know, and this is the lesson that Ahab fails to learn. He didn't learn it at Carmel. He didn't learn it after the first battle, didn't learn it after the second battle. You will know after you have these multiple victories that I am the Lord. You and all Israel. Do you remember what happened? Ahab is supposed to carry out what's called the ban in Scripture. He's supposed to destroy the Syrian. Remember, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, had talked some trash to them. He had surrounded them and said, not only are you going to be my vassal, I'm going to come in, I'm going to plunder you. And Ahab said, ah, it's not great. He said, well, because you have rejected my rule, I'm going to pulverize you. There's not even going to be enough dust of your city left for my soldiers to take up each a handful of that dust. Like, I'm going to vaporize you. Ahab is supposed to carry out God's justice and judgment against Ben-Hadad supposed to kill him, to devote him to destruction. And there are points in the narrative where he looks like he might be a mighty hero, like David or Gideon. You know, Gideon has that small, small force that prevails. He looks like he might be like Joshua. You'll remember the walls of the enemy fall in on the enemies. And it turns out that he's aching the troubler of Israel. That which was devoted to the Lord, he did what he wanted with instead of destroying. And now the king of Syria, whom he brought up in his chariot with, called brother before killing his fellow Israelite Naboth in the next chapter, the enemy of God he sent away in peace. But now that he has some economic desires. Now he wants to take care of the king of Syria. And he wants Jehoshaphat to help him. And Jehoshaphat, good guy, says, I am with you. You know, I kind of got to be, kids are married. Not, not much of a choice here. I'm, I'm with you. But 
inquire first of the Lord. See what God would have us do. I mean, what a great idea this is. They are kings. They have prophets at their disposal. They can call them together, and they can see if God wants them to go to war. really is a nice feature of being kings, kings of Israel. What about us, though? You know, as I was reading this, you know, it's a good thing to inquire of the Lord, but what about us? We don't have prophets that we can just call at our disposal to speak to us the true and faithful word of the Lord. We don't have that. But what we do have is the word of the apostles and the prophets. Remember, Paul tells us in Ephesians, the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. We have the words of God that have come to us through the pens of men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. We have God's word before us in the Bible. So, friend, you do not need to call for prophets to know God's will. You do not need any extra biblical revelation to please God. You do not need to have an ecstatic spiritual experience to hear from God. You need to simply submit yourself to prayer and study of God's word and ask that the Holy Spirit might help you to understand God's word and apply it to your life. If you want to know God's will, read your Bible. Like the way to know God's will is to not get alone and, and do a darkness retreat over a weekend and sit by yourself in a room and try to empty your mind and think of nothing. That's very Eastern spiritual mysticism. That's not Christianity. Think, oh, at some point, something will just pop into my mind and that will be God's will for me. No, that, that's not how we discern God's will. We discern God's will by looking at his word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your holiness, that you should avoid sexual immorality. 1 Peter 2.15. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the talk of ignorant and foolish people. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God's will for you is that you would be holy, that you would do good, that you would give thanks in all circumstances, that your mind would be informed and shaped by his word, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and that your decisions would honor him. But you might say, Pastor, that's not exactly what I want to know when I'm asking about the will of God. You see, when I ask about the will of God, what I want is to know, you know, where should I go to college? Who should I marry? When should I retire? What career 
should I pursue? Should I buy a blue dress or a red dress? Should I have chocolate ice cream or vanilla ice cream? I want, I want to know what God wants me to do in each and every decision in my life. Friend, God is not going to give you explicit answers to those types of questions. He has given you his word. He's given you prayer. He's given you wonderful counselors in his church. And he has given you a mind so that you can make decisions and act. If you want to do something that is consistent with God's will of desire, his revealed will, that's what he tells us he wants us to do in Scripture, explicit commands, if you want to do something and it doesn't violate God's revealed will, get after it. Do it. It's okay. God wants you to obey his word and he wants you to walk by faith, using your mind to honor him with each and every step. If you are obeying God's word, and you're not sure which college to go to, but you think you would rather be a hokey than a, a who, is it who or hose? I still don't know. No help, huh? Nobody wants to be brave. If you want to go to Virginia Tech instead of UVA, go ahead and go to Virginia Tech. It is no sin. If you are striving to keep God's commandments and you find someone else who loves Jesus and you want to yoke up with them for the rest of your life, get married and stay married. If you're obeying God's word and you have the resources to faithfully retire, and that's what you want to do, retire. You don't want to retire, you want to keep, work, keep working. It is no sin. If you are obeying God's word and you have the skills to become a mason or a physician, then pick up the stone or the scalpel. It is glorifying to God. God has told you in his word all that you need to know to follow him faithfully. His Holy Spirit has given you all that you need for life and godliness. So live in obedience to his word and use the mind that he gave you to make decisions. Act. There is not some super secret will of God for you that you have to unlock through dreams or visions or voodoo. You do not need to lay out fleece or cast lots or look for writing in the clouds and the sky. You do not need to try and look really hard at ink blots for messages from God. You don't need to do any of that. You don't need to shake up a magic eight ball. God, should I take this job? Ask again later. <sighs> no. All you must do is be faithful to what God has revealed to be his good and perfect will in Scripture. Obey his word, then make decisions and act. This is good news for you. God has not burdened you with divining every decision that you have to make in life. That's why he gave you a mind. You don't have to 
go before the Lord at Black Bear Creamery and say, Lord, I need an answer. Do I get the, the, the gummy bear, berry, or moose tracks, or you know, peanut butter? If I don't know which flavor to get, Lord, what's your will for me? You don't need to do that. You can just go in there and go, that one looks delicious. You can take, give me the gummy bears, the birthday cake. Make decisions. Honor God. So many Christians get this wrong. So many Christians think there is more, there's a deeper, more ecstatic, deeper spiritual experience that I can have. And God's word is it's great, but it doesn't really meet me where, where I am. You see, God is more dynamic than that. He's going to speak to me, not in his word, but in my own mind when I go and light candles in a room and sit quietly or or, or I, I go and I do something to, to get this spiritual high. That's not how God functions. Does God do amazing things? Yes. Can God act in extraordinary ways? Yes. But brothers and sisters, apart from the Spirit working through the Scriptures, through God's holy word, this is important, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us in our decision-making nor should we expect him to. You know the will of God for your life? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God's will for you is that you follow Jesus, that you walk by faith, and that you make faithful decisions. Jehoshaphat and Ahab, though, they had prophets. And so they, they call the prophets in for a decision. And it is sort of awkward. Ahab hasn't thought about consulting with God on the matter at all. It's Jehoshaphat's idea. It might be akin to if you went over to a non-Christian's home and they're having a big meal and you all sit down to the meal and you say, all right, Joe, why don't you say grace to the Lord Jesus Christ for us? Let's pray. And atheist friend's like, what? Uh, okay, you know, I guess we'll do that. That's what Ahab's like, all right. Um, okay, yeah, we have prophets here. And he has hundreds of them. We're going to get to that in a second. He, he's not interested in hearing from God. He wants to do what he wants to do. But he's going to humor Jehoshaphat. He's going to bring in his prophets. Verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men, and said to them, Shall I go to battle against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up! For the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not another prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Really, I love my ESV. This is, this is a mess up here. The word another is not in the original text. So you should just read that. Is there not here a prophet of the Lord of whom we may inquire? Important. Verse 8. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, there is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, Micaiah, the son of Imlah, but I hate him, for he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say so. It's more like, is that so? Really? I can't imagine why he might prophesy evil against you. Then the king of Israel summoned an officer and said, bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah, now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting on their thrones 
arrayed in their robes at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Here's the scene real quick. They are in all of their royal regalia on their thrones, not at the threshing floor of Aranah, who the temple of Jerusalem was purchased from, but at the threshing floor of Samaria, this false Jerusalem, counterfeit version, inquiring of the Lord from 400 false prophets. Now, these prophets claim a connection to Yahweh, the God of Israel, but the author has showed us already through Jehoshaphat's question, he's saying, these are not genuine prophets of the Lord. Jehoshaphat is asking, is there a prophet of the Lord here? And Ahab knows what he means. He's going to send for Micaiah. These are false prophets. And it really is interesting that there are 400 of them. If you'll remember back to Mount Carmel, there are 400 or so, I think it's 450 prophets of Baal, and then there are 400 prophets of Asherah. And the Asherah prophets don't show up at the showdown. Now, are these the same ones? I don't know. I do think that we are to make the connection, that we have a sort of secondary Mount Carmel going on. There will be truth and there will be a lie, and which will be believed. And so Zedekiah, verse 11, the son of Chanah, made for himself, so this means premeditated, horns of iron, and said, Thus saith the Lord, with these, so think like a wild ox, you shall push the Syrians until they are destroyed. And all the prophets prophesied so and said, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and triumph. The Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Man, I love church when Zedekiah shows up, right? He, he, he shows up to this assembly, kings all decked out in their regalia, and there's hundreds of prophets prophesying, and then here comes Zedekiah with his horns of a wild ox. And that's not by mistake. You see, not only was his construction of the wild ox horns premeditated, but so to his message. He's picking up a promise from the book of Deuteronomy that was made to the tribes of Joseph about their victory over a particular foe. And he's, he's putting that promise, he's, he's taking it and he's applying it to Ahab and Jehoshaphat's present situation. Now, we've already been tipped off that Zedekiah is a false prophet, but he is a, he's tricksy, wicked, and false. He's not true. Friends, we must be careful who we listen to. Zedekiah has all the markings. It's normal for prophets to do sign acts. He does a sign act. He has that prophetic formula down. He speaks in the right cadence, thus saith the Lord. He even uses part of the Bible to make his point. It's important for us to remember that the devil often presents himself as an angel of light and that the serpent has been twisting scripture since the garden. Beware of false teachers. It's easy to recognize false teachers when they look like the prophets on Mount Carmel, cutting themselves and calling out to a false god, babbling on and on. It is much harder to recognize a false teacher when they look like you or me, 
attend our churches, know the right words to say, and pick up sections of Scripture. Be careful, friends. Zedekiah speaks a false word, but Jehoshaphat is only interested in a word from the Lord. And so Micaiah comes. Verse 13, And the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, Behold, words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. And when Micaiah had come to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall we refrain? And Micaiah answered him, Go up and triumph, the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And Micaiah said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, These have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? This is a, a comical scene, comedy gold, some might say. Micaiah gets sent for. All the other prophets are saying exactly what Ahab wants to hear. Reminds us of our scripture reading in 2 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4, one of the Timothy 4s. People will gather for themselves teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. This is what Ahab has done. All the prophets are telling him what he wants to hear. And here comes Micaiah, <laughs> and Ahab asks for a message, and he says, sarcastically, yeah, go up. The Lord will give it into your hands. And you can tell this is sort of a, a shtick, a ritual back and forth between Ahab and Micaiah. Because Ahab turns and says, we've been through this. Tell me the truth. Tell me what God has really spoken. It's so interesting. Over and over, Ahab is interested in knowing the truth. Not so he can believe it, but so that he can reject it. So they go through this shtick, and then finally, a not Ahab, Micaiah, Micaiah lays out God's sentence for him. He says, if you go into this battle, you will die, and your people will come home in peace. And Ahab stamps his foot and says, see, Jehoshaphat, I told you, nothing good from Micaiah. And before we get any other information, Micaiah jumps in here to give Ahab some really interesting information. Look at verse 19. And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing, and another said another. Then 
a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? The spirit said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all Ahab's prophets. And he said to him, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster for you. This is really, really interesting. We are put into God's war room. God is at war with Ahab. He has prescribed death for him, and he is going to bring Ahab's death about providentially. And so he's sort of, this is an interesting scene. He's like, all right, how are we going to do this? I want him to die at Ramath Gilead. Who will go and entice him to do that for me? And one spirit says one thing, another spirit says another. And this one's like, I will go and I will be a deceptive spirit in the mouths of his prophets. You go, okay, how do we untangle this? And I think that's the first thing to try and understand this. I don't understand all the details, but this I know. God is going to bring his judgment upon Ahab. That's what the whole thing is about. It is God's will that Ahab die in this battle. And so God is going to bring it about. You see that in verse 23. The Lord has declared disaster for you. God's judgment is true. And it is poetic. The king that Ahab was supposed to have destroyed, well, he's going to go into battle against him and die. The king, ultimately, we're going to get there in a second, the king that, that Ahab should have destroyed, actually came up into Ahab's chariot. And was, there was peace made, and Ahab's going to die in his chariot. Ahab's blood is going to be licked up by dogs in the same way that Naboth's blood was licked up by dogs. God's poetic justice is going to come on Ahab for all the wicked that he has done, yes, and also for his fundamental act of evil his decision to over and over again reject the truth and believe lies. And the Lord, this is just so cool, underscores this by putting this information in the mouth of Micaiah. You see, Micaiah says, here's what's happening to you in your situation right now. Your prophets are lying to you. And they're lying to you because God sent a lying spirit into their mouths so that you'll go down to this battle and die. The Lord's declared disaster for you. You see, like, like Micaiah is laying out exactly what's happening. He's telling Ahab of the judgment. And do you see, do you see it there? In this declaration of judgment, there is an invitation to repentance there is an invitation to receive mercy. There is an invitation to look at the truth of the situation and to believe it and to reject the lies. After all that Ahab has done, here is another opportunity for mercy. Ahab has rebuilt 
Jericho. He married himself to Jezebel, a daughter of Ethbaal. He is built up a temple to Baal. He has led and allowed Jezebel to spread idolatry throughout the land. Ahab is one who we learn later sacrifices his children to false gods. Here is one of the most wicked of men. Verse 25 of the last chapter tells us he is the most wicked of kings ever in Israel. And yet over and over again, since we met him at the end of chapter 16, the Lord has graciously spoken to him, has graciously invited him to receive mercy. I mean, remember the last time, Elijah prophesied judgment, and he humbled himself. He had remorse, but for a moment. And even in that slight tilting of his heart in God's direction, God had mercy. It's like God poked Elijah in the ribs and said, do you see this? Do you see Ahab? He's humbled himself before me, so I'm not going to eliminate his whole family in his day. I'll have mercy. He won't see that part of my judgment. God is rich in mercy. He's a big spender. He loves to lavish his people with love. He he is waiting for Ahab to repent. He's laid all the cards explicitly on the table. Here are your prophets lying. Here is my one true prophet. You know he speaks truth. You asked him to speak the truth in the name of the Lord. You know he's different than your false prophets. He's told you the whole game plan. You can go to your destruction and reject the truth. You can believe the lie and go into the judgment you deserve. But do you hear it? It's not in the text. Ahab, if you will stay here, if you will repent of believing the lies and believe the truth, my prophets, if you'll turn from your sins, And turn your heart towards me. Your sins are many, but my mercy is more. God is so gracious. He forgives, is willing to forgive people like Ahab. And praise God, he's willing to forgive people like you and me. This is how merciful and good our God is. I mean, you look at a life like Ahab's and you see God's sort of repeated pursuit of him, his repeated invitations to enjoy forgiveness and relationship. And Ahab rebuffs them again and again and again. But we get a portrait of God's heart for us because we, like Ahab, throughout our lives, rejected God. We have, especially before Christ, lived by lies. And even now that we know the truth, there are days where we choose to live by lies rather than the truth. We have a God who forgives us, has forgiven us, and will forgive us of all our sins. We have a God who so loved us, Christian, so loved you, Christian, that he sent his only son in the power of the Spirit to die on the cross in your place for your sins. God sent Jesus to take all of his wrath, all the wrath that you and I had stored up, so that we could enjoy all the blessing that only Jesus Christ deserves. 
Jesus Christ came and was fastened to a tree, crowned with thorns, spit upon, had his flesh ripped out by whips. He went into the grave so that you and I might come out of it. This is the good news of the gospel. We deserve hell. We deserve death stretched out across eternity. And God unites us to Christ by his grace and gives us every spiritual blessing in him. God guarantees that our end will not be eternal destruction, but eternal life together with God and his people. For us, we do not look forward to going to that place of complete darkness where we are crushed to pieces, where the worm never dies. No, no, no. We are promised a city to come where there is nothing but joy and delight and celebration. That city where Jesus is king. And all are in submission perfectly to his rule and reign. Our God is so gracious. He speaks even to the likes of Ahab. He offers mercy. And Ahab chooses judgment. He chooses to live by lies rather than the truth. He is obstinate. Can you see that back? Verse 8. There's one man we may inquire of, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but evil. I don't want to listen to his message because I don't like it. It says the same thing in verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 18. Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? He doesn't want to listen to the truth. He would rather live by his lies. And he's gathered up 400 prophets that will tell him whatever he wants to hear. And I wonder, Christian, is that you in your life? Are you surrounded by yes men and yes women? Who are the Micaiahs in your life who can call you to repentance? What lies do you like to believe? Maybe some of the same ones as our culture right now? You can be anything you want to be, even the opposite gender. God is so open and affirming, he doesn't care what you do with your body sexually. Maybe it's just much simpler than that. You just believe, at the end of the day, God just wants me to be happy, no matter how I live my life. What lies are you believing? Live not by lies. Believe the truth. Listen to the word of God. Do not reject it as Ahab does. To his eternal damnation. Verse 24. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanah, came near and struck Micaiah on the cheek and said, How did the Spirit of the Lord go from me to speak to you? You're the liar, not me. That's what he's saying. 
And Micaiah said, Behold, you shall see on that day when you go into an inner chamber to hide yourself. And the king of Israel said, Seize Micaiah and take him back to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him meager rations of bread and water until I come in peace. And Micaiah said, If you return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Hear all you peoples. He is rejecting the Lord's prophet. He is rejecting the word of the Lord. Micaiah is insulted with a slap. He is humiliated by being put in chains. Friends, we should see forward to the cross where Jesus Christ is insulted with slaps and given far more than an imprisonment. Indeed, we should even look at Micaiah's life and count ourselves as those who might one day have to suffer for following Christ. A servant is not above his master. The king rejects the word and goes into battle, verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth-Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset a cry went out through the army, Every man to his city, every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria. And they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria. And the dogs licked up his blood. And the prostitutes washed themselves according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. We have another somewhat comical scene at the front end. It's darkly humorous. Ahab says... I'm going to go into this battle, and I don't believe the word of the Lord, but you are going to dress as a king, and I am going to dress as a common rank-and-file soldier. That way, I won't perish. Now, that's his thinking. And they go into the battle, and Jehoshaphat begins to be chased by the Syrians, and he cries out in such a way that they know that he's not Ahab. I don't know if it was an accent or if he just straight up was like, not Ahab. You know, I don't know. But then they, they turn away from him and they are doing their thing and you have a random soldier draw his bow, so it seems randomly. He looses an arrow and the arrow lands in the chest of Ahab. God's providence guides the arrow right to its mark. 
God's will always gets done. Always. Ahab could not hide himself from the Lord any better than Saul did. Ahab cannot stand against the holy God. Even though he fights him with every fiber of his being. I don't even understand this sort of half measure, this sort of halfway obedience. He's going to disguise himself and still go to the battle. Sort of reminds myself of my children. Sometimes uh, we're telling them to clean their room, as parents do. And they'll go in and they'll take a few bits of clothing off the floor. And then we'll go in to you know, check the work. Usually Chelsea, she's harder than I am. I go in, I'm like, it's fine. But, but, uh, but Chelsea goes in and she looks and she sees like, you know, there's some dust in the corner over there. Uh, your bed is not made. Try again. You're, you're in disobedience. You've done what I asked halfway, and halfway obedience is actually full disobedience. It doesn't bring reward. In our house, it brings discipline. Disobedience brings discipline. And here, for Ahab, disobedience brings the judgment of God. Ahab's death is gruesome. An arrow through the chest. And then we are left with that image of prostitutes bathing in his blood and dogs licking it up. He dies an idolater outside the city of God, outside of right relationship with God. And his death, as horrific as it is, paints a dim picture of the realities of hell. Ahab's judgment is still ongoing. Sin against the infinite, perfect, and holy God deserves infinite punishment. He is still paying for his sins in hell and will be paying for his sins forevermore. The writer of Kings, we're almost to the end of the book here, wants us to know that God's salvation of his people is sure and that God's judgment against his enemies is just as certain. He wants us to recognize that the word of the no-name prophet in chapter 20 was right. That Elijah's words in chapter 21 were right. That Micaiah's words here are right. That Jehoshaphat's name is right. Jehoshaphat means Yah judges. Yahweh judges. God judges. God's judgment comes. God is no marshmallow in the sky. He is a warrior who fights his enemies until he has the victory. Christ is Lord. He is ruler of all. And he will avenge his loved ones. He will have victory over all his enemies. He will crush ultimately all evil underneath your feet. King's word will come to pass. Friends, Jesus Christ came the first time to bear the judgment of God in the place of all who will believe in him.
And when he comes the second time, he's coming to bring the judgment of God against all who hate him. The light will shine in the darkness. The darkness will not overcome it. Non-Christian, come out of the darkness this morning and into the light. Come and rejoice before our great God and King who is merciful and just. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friend, live not by lies. Listen to the word of the Lord, the word of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your kindness to us. We, like Ahab, deserve hell. And yet you give us the opposite of what we deserve. Give us Christ. You give us blessing instead of curse. Give us life instead of death. You have called us your friends and your family despite our fighting against you for so long as a foe. We thank you for this great salvation. We thank you that you have forgiven all our sins in the past. We ask that you forgive all the sins we've committed this week. We delight knowing that we have that forgiveness, not just now, but for every sin we will commit until that day when we are glorified together with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.